past week was, see you at the pole. See you at the pole. Anybody know that? Raise your hand if you even knew that. Keep your hand up if you went. Uh-huh, kind of sad. Every single hand went down. Um, only about half the hands went up. Then most of them went down. So it's something I think that's sadly losing a little bit of steam, I would say. And I think part of it is, actually, I think it's a great idea for prayer. It's a great concept for a nation that's experiencing, I think, so much animosity towards God and towards spiritual things that we would have a time to get together and, and pray. But gang, I have seen two different things take place. I've seen vastly different outcomes in See You at the Pole. I've been there where it's like many revivals. And it's led by youth groups and people are having full-on worship bands out there and times of prayer. I've seen you know, just dozens and dozens of people, maybe a couple hundred where they're all on their knees praying and it's just a powerful moment. But I've been to other times at See You at the Pole where it's kind of the opposite. In fact, it's a little bit embarrassing uh, as no one seemed quite sure what to do. And that's a tragedy for something like this because when we go to prayer, we're actually entering the throne room of God and talking to, we have an audience with our creator, almighty God. At one after an uncomfortably long silence, one teacher, no, nobody was going to lead the thing. They, had, they didn't have a plan. And one teacher kind of panicking, you know, moved forward and offered an awkward sort of stammering kind of prayer that sounded less like a prayer and more like a seventh grade guy who finally talked to that girl he liked who he'd only seen from a distance but never really talked to. Uh, um, hi, you know, what's up? And, it's, and the prayer was a little bit like this. Um, God, uh, thanks for this beautiful day. It was foggy and rainy, by the way. But don't want to let any of that get in the way. Some things are just cruise control. Thank you for this beautiful day is a robotic way some of us start all of our prayers. Uh, I'm going to pray that, and this is what I can remember, that we're all good today and represent good morals and, and don't follow the wrong crowd. Uh, then it was silent again for a while, a little awkward. Amen. Amen. Ouch. I mean, that's hardly the inspiring kind of rallying prayer that's going to take young people today uh, to follow Jesus and into the throne room. In fact, it's hard to tell what was going on at all at that particular seat at the pole. Even Inspector Sherlock Holmes needs more information to go on than what this guy said. He didn't say amen or in Jesus' name or anything, just, just amen, like I'm done. Even the best investigator needs a name, otherwise he could have been praying to Hare Krishna, could have been praying to anybody. No, what was clearly going on there was a gathering of young people hoping to participate in something meaningful, uh, something needed, something missing in their lives, or they probably wouldn't have gathered there. Somebody told them, you know, we used to be able to pray in school. Prayer is important. You know, show your support. Gather at the pole, and then they get there, and, and nobody delivers, and nobody delivers. And why was that? Because they needed to be led to the throne room by somebody who had actually spent some time there themselves. Now, I'm not picking on this teacher at all. That's why I didn't tell you who it was. I don't even remember. That's not the point. There's something at far greater issue going on here than that. How can we lead people to the throne room we've never been to? How can we lead, introduce them to somebody we've never met or somebody we barely know? Kind of makes you think of something else. And it, definitely, how can we get God's marching orders for what he would have us do with our lives when we barely know him? So if you don't know him or if you're not led by somebody who knows him, then the exercise, any exercise, but even see you at the pole, becomes this. And you can write some of these things down if you want, but here's the first. It becomes an exercise in futility. And nobody has time for that, right? 
Just going through something that's futile. It's pointless anyway. Ever arrive, I want you to think about this. You ever arrive, arrive at a large gathering or even a medium-sized one, you know, something like this, and everybody seems to be milling around nervously, and then they all get together until finally a leader steps forward of sorts and tries to get things going with a rough idea of what we're supposed to be doing. You ever been anything like that? Sure you have. And sadly, all around the country, usually on this day, they have a word for that gathering that feels that way for a lot of people. It's called church. It's called church. Well, I want to start us off this morning straightforward, uh, right off the bat, with a simple question. And it's going to seem so simple that you might even be offended by it. You don't seem like the easily offended type, are you? That's why you have me, to get you there, to the point of offense. So here it is, and it seems like a pretty bizarre question for somebody starting a church who really wants to reach a lot of people and get them here. This is going to, why don't I just come out with it? Here it is. Ready? Because you don't seem ready. Question is, what are you doing here? Let that sink in a little bit. Just, just your private question is for you. What are you doing here? What are we doing here? Why are we gathered here on this day at this time? What are we hoping to achieve? Is there anything that we're supposed to accomplish in this gathering? Or did God just tell us to gather up and wait for further orders at this place with these people, with this guy up front, with these weird musicians crammed onto a couch they barely fit on back there? Why are we doing this? Why are, why are we here? No, it's not waiting for orders. It's not nebulous. In fact, in the broadest sense, what we're to be about has been spelled out crystal clear in Scripture. The first most, most general thing when we gather like this is we are to gather, we are here to worship. But that doesn't help much for some of you, does it? Some of you are going, thanks a lot for that, Pastor. I'll log that away. I, but can I just say one thing? I'm not sure what worship is. I mean, what is worship? It's not really, you know, honestly, Pastor, we don't, a lot of my friends, we don't use that word much. So what does it mean? I don't really understand what it is. And if that's you, you've, came to the right, you've come to the right place today, because not only going to tell you, we're going to show you through three specific stories in Luke. So open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're still in the RX series, but it's a little bit different. We're still in God's um, prescriptions for abundant living. Uh, we're just going to skip around a little bit in Luke and find what I would call three beginner worship stories, Okay. These are people that worshiped powerfully, but they were beginners. All but one, two of them were just flat out newbies. The other one was, was coming along in their faith, but the worship that is offered here is beginner. But this is encouraging, gang, because it was beginner, but it was really powerful. Powerful worship. And through each of these stories, you're going to get one point that if you'll let this sink home, then the next time you want to enter the throne room of God, it's going to be it's going to be pretty easy. Here's the first one. First point. Each one has a powerful point. I'm just going to give you the point up front. If you're writing these down, the first one is true worshipers get to Jesus no matter what's standing in the way. True worshipers will get to Jesus no matter what obstacle there is, no matter what. Uh, they have a, a beautiful, reckless disregard for anything and everything that blocks the path to Jesus. They're going to jump over it, plow through it, go around it, do whatever they have to do, go under it, but they're going to get to Jesus. True worshipers, they realize if I don't get to Jesus, I haven't worshiped. So that's the first thing. So chapter 7 of Luke. Go ahead and turn there. 
or beam there with your phones or iPads or whatever. Here's a little background on the story I'm about to share with you. Jesus' enemies, I like to call them the religious fake. They're usually called the Pharisees. They're at it again. They're following him. Stalking would be a better word than following because this is what they do. Whenever he preaches, they find out ahead of time where he's going to be. And then they go from village to village as he goes from village to village. And they sit out there, the religious leaders from all over, all, as far away as Jerusalem. And basically, if they had a pen and paper or they have a scroll and papyri or whatever they have the right with, they'll sit back and critique him. And they are there to simply gather a list of things wrong with him so they can do him in because he's cutting into their religious business. Pretty sick, isn't it? And he does beautiful things, loving things, gracious things, miraculous things right in front of them and it goes right over their head and it goes right through their heart and it never hits home. They just want to nail him. They're only there. They miss all the bad. I mean, all the, all the good and they just want bad. And there is no bad because Jesus never sinned. So they make it up. They fill in the blank. All right, these are the ancient day bloggers and tweeters and critics who feel almost called to a life of critiquing others while carefully avoiding any real scrutiny on their own life. And they're alive and well today too. And they're all over churches. They never leave Jesus alone even for an instant, reading between his every line, re-examining each healed individual for something, uh, interviewing ones that were healed on the Sabbath to go, I don't care what he did, it's the Sabbath, you know that, right? So you know he sinned for healing you. And all. I mean, that was all they ever did. Village to village to village. It never stops. And here they are, and they're going to take their game up a notch here in this chapter, beginning with verse 36. Let's take a closer look. One of the fairies, Pharisees, fairies, eh, that's good. Let's call them fairies. One of the fairies asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, that's all we know about her, when she heard that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flack of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to, to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment, and anointed his feet with ointment. So, simply following Jesus around and trying to catch him for the Pharisees is taking too long. Turns out when he's around the people and all those being healed, they like him too much. So it's really, they're not able to build a case. So one of the religious leaders, his name is Simon here, one of the Pharisees invites Jesus over to his house and don't, don't miss this. And don't misread it either. It's not a pleasant invite. It's not, you know, we really like you. I, I perceive that you're religious too. You seem to like to debate religious things and you seem to be into what we're into. Come on over and we'll have a nice theological time together. It's not that at all, gang. They invite him over because that's their turf and there will be other Pharisees there and there's not likely to be anybody else but Pharisees and Jesus. So he will be outnumbered and there'll be no pesky sick people to be healed, no lost to be found, no hurting people that are given hope, just them and they'll be able to nail them and compile quite a list. That's their hopes. And it all starts off according to plan until she walks in. Until she walks in. That, I guarantee you, gang, was not part of the plan. Who invited her? How'd she even get in? Where was Samson the bouncer? Why didn't he throw her out? This is unacceptable. This is not the plan that we had. And then I think there's probably a little shift in them and they're going, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. This woman was a prostitute. In that culture, the worst of all sins, the most, the most marginalized and, and hated person was a prostitute. And I think at first they thought this is gonna mess it up, but I believe they let her stay because they thought, let's just see what Jesus does with this sinner. And we'll nail him anyway. And it turns out she sits at his feet. And imagine how awkward this is. 
Now, they didn't sit at tables. They reclined at tables. The tables would have been about a foot high, and everybody's sort of reclining around it. And she's reclining behind Jesus, crying. She's got expensive perfume in her hand, and she's weeping, and the tears are falling on Jesus' feet, and, and she feels bad about that and starts wiping them with her hair, the very hair that she used to lure men in, and, and that's part of her trade. And what she, She's using that to wipe the tears off, and this is a powerful scene, and it's awkward at the same time, and nobody really knows what to do, but Jesus knew what to do. I love it. He just rolled with it. So here's a question. Who is this woman? It's important. It's very, very important. First of all, let me tell you who she wasn't. This is not Mary Magdalene out of who Jesus cast out seven demons because we'll meet her later in Luke after chapter seven. And this isn't Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. We'll read about her shortly today. I've got a story with that Mary in it. Later in other gospels, we find out this woman is Mary, but a different Mary. This is just Mary, the former prostitute. Some think it might have been the Mary or the woman that was thrown out in, in front of Jesus and, and they said, the law says stone this woman. And he said, he is without sin. Cast first stone. It may have been her, some scholars think. Uh, why does it matter? Oh, it matters hugely. It matters hugely. Because this woman didn't feel the openness to presume to approach Jesus like Mary, who was Martha and Lazarus' sister. See, that Mary anointed Jesus' head with very costly perfume. And so we look at stories like this and see some similarities and go, is that the same Mary? No, it's a totally different one. That Mary who is, like I said, sister to Lazarus and Martha knows Jesus pretty well. And she anoints him boldly, uh, knowing what he's like, king of kings, but also friend of sinners. And she anoints his head right there. But this woman can't even look at him. She's at his feet. She's hiding her head. She's crying. She's emotional. She knows who he is, and she knows what he came to do, and she's beginning to feel that forgiveness, but she's also ashamed, and it's a beginner worship. It's beginner worship. And I think it's important, I think it's important for me. I think it's important for you guys, to, for worship leaders, to hear this, because we presume, we actually often err, I'll admit it. Sometimes when people aren't worshiping, because I really want us to learn what worship's like. I want us to be full out as a church. I want us to show others when they come to impact, how to be impacted by God because we enter the throne room. But sometimes I see people worship like this. Or maybe like this. They got their hands raised. That's a start. Beginner worship. Or maybe like this. You know, not singing. And, barely, and sometimes, and I think I err sometimes in this. I'll be like, come on, you guys, you got to bring it out and we'll, we'll almost berate you to get you to worship. And as I read this this week, totally different feeling on that. Maybe we err because, or guilt them, or reprimand people sometimes to be more intimate, to go far deeper in their expression of worship than their commitment warrants. Stay with me. If worship is hard or unnatural for you, perhaps it is because your relationship with Jesus, your knowledge of him is too shallow. It's too shallow. I know that could hurt some people. And some of you might be looking back and forth and going, is he talking to me? You talking to me, Pastor? I don't know. I don't know where your heart's at. I don't even know my own heart, Scripture says, so I certainly can't judge yours. But I do know that if you won't get excited and intimate and, and really let yourself go, you probably don't know him that well. Because if you knew him that well, you'd know what he did, you know what it cost, and you'd be unbelievably thrilled about it about this unbelievable opportunity we have on Sundays to come into the throne room and worship together corporately. So watch this. The problem, therefore, lies not in your manner of worship, but in your distance from Jesus. Problem number one. 
And this woman, this is good news for you if you're a beginner and you can't quite get there. This woman was a beginner, so she couldn't anoint his head with that perfume. She's just starting, but it was deep worship, and Jesus loved it. So there's hope. He loved it. And if we kept reading this, and we don't have time for that one. I wish we did. But if, if we kept reading this, and we would see that Jesus calls out for the simplest start, the, the, the most beginner thing in our lives, and receives it as though we've given him everything we have. Just a start. Just, a, just, a, just take a step, and he'll meet you there. I mean, he didn't cast her off because of who she was. He didn't say, that's not how you do it. Quit crying. I mean, don't use your hair. I, I mean, this is embarrassing. None of that. Because it's the opposite of how other religious leaders are. Completely the opposite. So if you're sitting here right now and you're going, I've been coming to church for years. This is me. I, I don't even know if I'm a beginner worship. I don't even know how to worship. This is kind of the first thing. Just take a step. Get to know him better and you'll find worship flowing more freely. Mary anointed Jesus' head, the other Mary, sister to Martha and Lazarus, because she knew him very well. So get these. Don't forget these as we move on. Don't forget the first one as we go to the second one. Don't forget the first and second one as we go to the third. Remember the first one is true worshipers. They'll get over, under, around anything, blow right through if they have to. The main things true worshipers want, no, they have to get to Jesus. Here's the second thing. True worshipers worship from a grateful heart. And true worship comes from a grateful heart. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. I understand it is for probably most people. Uh, but I've found over the years that it can be, there's, a, there's, there's one thing that happens that really for me makes a difference between magical and not so magical on a Christmas. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because I'm going to read this next story in Luke and see if you can find out what it is, if you can pull it out. So turn to Luke 17 for our next story. Luke 17, verse 11. And I'll start reading. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered in a village, he was met by 10 lepers. Remember, we talked last week about how hideous and disfiguring this disease is. And they stood at a distance because that's the law. They've got to be, they have to stand far off. And they started shouting because they knew this was their only chance. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. It's kind of strange, isn't it? He wasn't, well, I'll have mercy, you're healed. He said, go and show yourselves to the priest. I'm sure some of them were thinking, well, he doesn't want to see us right now because we have leprosy. And we don't want to show ourselves because he knows what a leper is. We want to be healed. But he didn't say you're healed. He said, go and show yourselves to the priest. So there was an act, a movement of obedience that had to take place. And as they went, this is kind of cool. As they were journeying there, I don't know how far they went, 10 steps, a mile, probably a little bit away, they were cleansed. I don't know if it happened like that or if it happened slowly and then boom, halfway there. They were cleansed. Then one of them, catch that, one of the 10, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Started right there. And all the way back to Jesus. And then he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Not his knees. This isn't a Tebow thing. It's not take one knee. It's on his face before Jesus. One of them. The other nine are still heading off to the priest. Giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Now, some of you might go, well, that... 
that's kind of irrelevant. No, Samaritans were the most despised people group there was. And we've gone into the history. You'll have to read or get the podcast from earlier message to see why. But they were half Jewish, half Samaritan, and, and Jews hated them. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus is saying, only one came back. Only one was grateful. Only one worshiped me. Only one got it. And he's the one you hate. He should have been the least likely candidate. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this, a foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. So, remember the Christmas scenarios I was talking about? Kind of how they go? Parents, where are you? Raise your hand. All right. Kids, raise your hands. Let me see the kids. All kids, raise your hand. All right. Listen up, kids. Might learn something here. Here it is. The not-so-magical scenario at Christmas. This happens when it's all about the gifts, right? I mean, we've all seen kids who tear open box after box of gifts with barely more than a grunt to the giver, right? What's next? Where are my presents? Where's my pile? That kind of thing. Or most of us have been in an environment where we keep hearing over and over again, now, Johnny, what do you say to Aunt Gertrude? (laughs) She got you. What do you say? Huh? Which one's Aunt Gertrude? (laughs) Right over there. Uh, Thanks. Thanks. Barely even looks. Or more than likely, if you've got a little kid kind of tearing open a present and Gertrude's back there, Johnny, what do you say to Aunt Gertrude? Thanks. Didn't even look. (laughs) They just keep on. They're on a mission. And Gertrude's not part of it. She's not important. Glance over, give you the same look. In fact, the kids who will glance over, it looks a little bit more like a deer in the headlight when they think they hear, you know, you ever seen a deer grazing and then they think they hear a noise and it's kind of, (laughs) and then it's back to whatever they're doing. That's the kid. Go say, don't you say thank you? Huh, what, what? I'm busy here. I'm doing something that's very, very important. It's almost as though you woke them up from a nap or a coma or something, and there's a mixture of confusion and irritation when you wake a kid up, especially if it's first school. Hello, I'm trying to open presents here. I'm on a mission. Do we really need to ruin it with this bizarre ritual called gratitude? So that's the one scenario that makes Christmas not so magical, right? But then there's the other one, the magical one. You know who that one leper reminds me of? They're still stuck in my head. It reminds me of the kid who hugs his grandparents. Reminds me of the little girl who who tears up, not because of the quality of the gift so much. It might not even be that big a deal. But more as she realizes the beauty and the love and the sacrifice of the gift giver. Have you ever been to a house where a little child will open things conservatively? Probably not. (laughs) Slow and when it's kind of their turn. And, And have you ever seen a child open something and the whole time look at the gift giver? And maybe put it down. It's almost as though that's not a big deal, although it's precious because they gave it. Have you ever seen a kid run over to their grandparents and give them a big hug and, you know, just, you know, kind of tears flowing and go, thank you so much. I love you so much. Have you ever seen that? That's magical. That's magical. It's almost as though the giver of the gift is the big deal and not the gift. Imagine that. If you've ever been on a mission trip, near Christmas, and you've been around people that have nothing, you'll see this. Doesn't even have to be Christmas time. Remember, I went to the uh, um, Mayans, my whole family. They have nothing. They live in huts. They still live in huts. They'll have a hammock or two, and their kitchen is basically the same room, and they have 
they build a fire in there, which can be dangerous, obviously. And if they're lucky, they can afford one pot and they cook it in. That's their, that's everything. And they pooled all their money together to make this one meal. Um, it's not what we would eat here. It's, it, it's, you know, it's very foreign tasting food to us. But I found out that it took like a month's wages. And they pooled it together to make one Sunday lunch for our whole mission team. That was, that was, that was their money so they could make enough for that. And we didn't, even, we didn't even want to take it. We found out they were putting this together. Like, please don't do this. Not what, we've brought you shoes. We've brought you stuff. And, and it, it took us about two seconds to realize that would offend them. And as they're giving us the meal and we're eating and they're not, because it's not enough, they're tearing up and smiling from ear to ear and full of joy, almost as though we meant more to them than their month's wages. And so true worship, as I said, comes from, has to come from a heart of gratitude. It's what God's after. Why do you think Jesus healed those 10 lepers? So he could reduce the leper colony, the population getting too big over there? I mean, there were tens of thousands of lepers probably. It was the most deadly, common disease, ran rampant, very contagious. Chooses these 10. Probably saw lepers every single time he entered any village. Why these guys? Why would he heal anybody? Why does he heal anybody of anything? Ultimately, it's not so that, I mean, if you have a... a debilitating disease and he heals you, guess what? You're still going to die. I mean, even if, you, even if you're Lazarus, for goodness sake, he, he rose from the dead. He, he wasn't completely cured. Did you know that? How many of you realize Lazarus still died? Raise your hand. That's right. He died again. Had to die twice, in fact. Had to go through that two times. He's healed, but he's still, this earthly life ends. I mean, he does what he does to somehow get at us spiritually, to somehow get at our heart. That's what he's after. He was after that one leper's heart. That's why he healed all of them. It's the story. It's the heart. It's the gratitude. You can't even come to the throne room of God properly and worship him at all if you're not thankful. And why are orphans and underprivileged and those with very little who have experienced less love in their life than anybody probably more likely to respond this way? Because scripture tells us just a little further on with this story in 747, Jesus said that he forgives this woman's sins, which really made the Pharisees mad. But in verse 47, it says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, that leper, for some reason, he realized that he had been given an unbelievable gift, but he went beyond the gift and realized, I don't deserve this, not only just because I'm a leper, but I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. You're supposed to hate me. So he was forgiven even more. His magnitude, is the gratitude, everything was huge. The other guys probably thought, we're Jews. We shouldn't have been sick anyway. Somebody messed up up there. Thank you, Jesus, for setting it right. We're on our way to the priest. But he said, but I, I don't fit. I'm a Samaritan. I shouldn't even have been with those guys. And you should hate me. And you touched me. And you reached out. And he fell on his face. So Jesus got gratitude out of him because I guess he who is more forgiven loves more. The biggest difference with this one leper from the other nine was that he saw beyond the physical gift of healing to the grace and mercy and love and beauty of the gift giver. Just like the child who looks and goes, you know, my grandma and grandpa, they don't have much, but look at what they gave, and I love them. And it was quite a condescension, like I said. How much did Jesus condescend to reach down to him? Sinner, leper, Samaritan. So, true worshipers will get through, past, over, under, round, 
anything to get to Jesus. True worshipers come worship from a heart of gratitude. And a couple more things on this. Going back to that Christmas thing, I was just sitting there thinking of other scenarios in there that somehow don't seem right. And part of it is when you come and, and it's supposed to be about the, the giver and the whole idea of giving to people because Jesus came and, and the Father gave his only son. That's the whole idea of Christmas. Somehow we've lost the idea of that. And you look at sometimes one of the other things that makes it not so magical is you'll see people open that. Have you ever seen a kid go, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't even my size. Hello, were you thinking, look, I'm skinny. This is, our, I mean, this won't fit me. I don't like, this is out of style. Where have you been? Have you ever seen stuff like this? This is a cool race car, but it's, you know, five years old. There's a new one out. I asked for that one. This one takes batteries. I want one that's rechargeable and takes batteries. I mean, have you ever heard that kind of, almost as though it's all about getting just the right thing to that spoiled little brat? Have you ever seen that? How does that relate to church? Well, have you ever come to church and said anything like that or thought it? I don't like this music. It's too loud. I don't like this song. How am I supposed to sing here? How am I supposed to get anything out of this? I don't know these words. They're on the screen. I don't care. I can't read. Don't like to read. It's not loud enough. We've heard both here. I'd like to keep on worshiping. I come from churches where they worship for like an hour. I'd like this thing to be a little shorter. Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that sort of the Christmas time thing? Is, do you hear hints of that in there? When almost as though it's about that worship is a gift to us and it's for us and everything's got to be just our size and just the right fit. Who are we, Goldilocks here? Right? Worship is for him. We actually gather here to tell him how great he is, to be thankful for what he has given us, to give glory to him because he's so, his ways are so far above ours. He is so much higher than us. And somehow at so many, far too many churches, it's been turned around to go, is this going to be a good concert? It's as though we're going to, to hear Coldplay or something. Paid a lot of money for this in form of tithe. I expect a good show. But that's not it at all. That's not it at all. And that brings us to the final thing. True worship is full and undivided. True worship is full and undivided. In other words, true worshipers don't multitask. Why? Because the worthiness has just been called into question with your limited attention. Am I right? Oh, we don't want to respond, do we? Raise your hand, men. Keep them up if you're married. All right. So you go out on a date. You can put them down now, by the way. Let's say you go out on a date with your wife. Or let's say, you know, early on when you were dating, she wouldn't be your wife at this scenario I'm about to say happened a lot. And you go to one of those places that's really intimate for a... Um, for a date like Hickory Tavern with the 48,000 TVs all over the wall. And so you're across from your future wife, you hope, you really like this, and you're looking over at the game, and she's sharing her life story with you, and things are so important, you're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yes, touchdown, right there, there it is. And she's going, I just shared, and you're going, hold on, I'm getting a text. And so you're looking down, so, so where is she going to find her worth right there? Somewhere in between Loading up iOS 7, I guess, in the Panthers, right? Where do I fit in there? And where's God going to find his worth when you're going, do I have a call? Where, we got plans for lunch. How soon are we going to be out of here? How long do you think Pastor Rob's going to? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. 
And I'm, I'm betting if you did that on some dates, that that was the, maybe the first and last date you ever had with that person. Because you didn't make them feel very worthy. And that's where worship comes from, worth. Worshiping something that's worthy, worth the praise. Last story, Luke 10. This is the other Mary, sister to Martha and Lazarus. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by much of the serving she had to do, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord looked at her and answered, Martha, Martha, twice. See, when my name said twice, like from an authority, I know I'm in trouble. Something bad's here. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about a lot of things. You're multitasking. You're busy. Focus. Only one thing is necessary. And your sister Mary has chosen it, which will not be taken away from her. Translation, I want you doing one thing right now, and you're doing everything except that. So the last person I'm going to rebuke is the one who's doing exactly what I want you to do. Why would you come to the presence of the Lord and bring all your stuff you've got to think about and do? It's not the place to finish your homework. It's not the place to finish the next level on the game you're playing. It's not the place to think about all you've got to do. It's the place to let everything go and focus on the one thing that is better. Jesus says Martha's name twice. He's really trying to get this through. He hardly ever does this. Martha, stop. You're fixing yourself and your mind on all these courses you're making, the meal, all these different meals, seven-course meal. You're busy cleaning up. You're prepping this, I guess, feast, and you don't get it. Right now, a simple small meal would have done. I just want you to spend some uninterrupted, focused time with me. That's all I wanted. That's why I stopped by. I just wanted to spend some time with you. I'm not going to rebuke your sister for sitting at my feet and soaking up my every word because that's exactly what I want all my children to do when they're in my presence. So write this down. Here's the key from that. What we do with Christ is infinitely more important than what we do for Christ. That's really almost could wrap up all three things. What we do with Jesus Christ is so much more important than what we do for Jesus Christ. Hopefully you even see the difference there, do you? You and I might be performing this duty or caring for that obligation or involved in these 10 ministries But in this passage, Jesus shows us that what we do with him as a friend and a savior and as God is more important than anything we could ever do for him in service to him. Even though it's important to serve him, if you're just going through the busyness of it and ignoring him, it's an exercise in futility. It's pointless. It's like gathering at the pole and nobody knows what to do. It's like ripping open gifts at Christmas just to see if you got exactly what you wanted. Check it off and go, this was a good Christmas, this was a bad one. Actually, it was a complete waste of time. You missed Christmas entirely. This was a good church service, this was a bad one. I got out on time, I got to the restaurant I wanted to. We're going to make it to the Panthers game. I'd say this was a win. No, I'd say it was a waste of time. This was a good church service. I encountered the Lord. I found out that I've got to fight anything and everything in my life to be at his feet in worship. 
I found out I have a lot to be thankful for. I found out so many things about myself. I found out I shouldn't bring all my busyness and everything to the last place that needs it. I should empty it all and just come with one purpose to worship Him and to learn more about Him.